morning, everyone. So, you're in the grocery store, and you're waiting in line to check out, and you have too many items to do the self-checkout, so you've got to go talk to somebody, and do a normal cashier line, and interact with the person working there, and so finally it's your turn to get up there. You say hello to the cashier, and she starts checking out your items, she asks if you want bags, and you say whatever it is that you say, probably no, I have my own cloth bags because I'm a good person, just kidding, do whatever you want to do. Uh, uh, and then you pay, and now, much more difficult than the dilemma of do I bring my own bags or do I use the ones here, I always forget to use our cloth bags, so I was just totally kidding about that, I always pay for new bags. Uh, but way more hard than that dilemma is what do you say, because it's December, and you kind of just are used to the idea of saying Merry Christmas to someone to be polite at the end of it. Except now you live in Toronto. And you know that's tricky. Because not everyone in Toronto celebrates Christmas. And you know that's sort of more inclusive and more smiled upon to say Happy Holidays. But, but you're a Christian and you shouldn't be afraid to talk about Jesus. But also, you're a Christian, and you want to be kind to your neighbors and be respectful for people who don't celebrate Christmas. And anyway, do you wish people Merry Christmas because you're a Christian or just because you're comfortable with it culturally? And anyway, do people even care? Is it really that big of a deal? What do you say? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's not, I know some of you have really strong opinions about what you should say. Either way, and, and you know what, that's okay, right? This is, this is an area that we can leave it up to people's consciences and just get along. We don't need to have a culture war over whether we say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. Right, we need to be able to get along with people in our city who have different beliefs about Jesus and Christmas. Do you know that our statement of faith, in our statement of faith at Ford, it says... We believe in religious liberty, that every person has the right to practice and propagate his beliefs. Which means that we believe that it is a good thing that in Canada, Muslims have the right to play, pray to Allah and not to celebrate Christmas. We believe it in, it's a good thing that in Canada, atheists have the right to pray to no one and to celebrate Christmas while ignoring Jesus. It's a good thing that they have the right to do that. Because faith in Jesus is not something you can force on people. It's ultimately between them and God, and history is full of examples of governments trying to enforce one religion or no religions, and how ugly that gets every single time. Now at this point, if you're a Christian, here's what I hope you're thinking. Yeah, I, okay, I get that, but there's only one true God. And we can't just sit back and let the, let the nations reject him called to be God's witnesses, Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of the nations. And if you're thinking that today, if you're thinking that, you're absolutely right, right? We believe in religious liberty, but that's not the same thing as pluralism. It doesn't mean that we believe that everyone has their own truth and there's no truth that's any more or less than any other truth, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one true God, and his name is Jesus. He is the king of all the earth. He is even the king of those who reject him, or those who twist the truth about him to make him just a good teacher or a prophet. We can't, we can't force 
anyone to believe in Jesus, but it should be our heart's deepest desire to see people open their eyes, or have their eyes opened by God, rather, to the truth of who he is, to believe in him, to submit to him as their king. That's so much more important than the dilemma of whether you say happy holidays or Merry Christmas. But what do we do? What does it look like for us to properly rejoice in Jesus as the king over all the earth? And help others to see that truth. That's our big idea for today. If you're taking notes, what does it look like for us to rejoice in Jesus as king over all the earth and help others to see that truth without forcing it on them in any way? Today we're going to look at Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is the next in our series on these psalms from Psalm 95 to 100 that we're doing this Advent. And it's a psalm that speaks of God as the king over all the earth and how we should respond to him. As you, I'm sure, are aware, this psalm is from the Old Testament. So its original writers wouldn't have understood the full truth of who God is. They wouldn't have known of Jesus as we know of him today. They wouldn't have understood that God is Trinity, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. But the New Testament writers, they picked up this psalm, and they understood that it spoke of Jesus, the promised Messiah, that he's the king over all the earth, that he is God's son. And in, in uh, the year 1719, much later than the Bible, the hymn writer Isaac Watts took this psalm and used it as the basis of her song, Joy to the World. This psalm has a, a deep tradition and history of being understood as a Christian song about Jesus, all the way back to the writing of the New Testament. So this psalm will give us lots of insight on how we should rejoice in Jesus as the king over all the earth and what it looks like for us to help others to do so as well. So as we consider that, this psalm is going to say two things to us. The first is this, that our lives need to display the salvation of our king. If we want to rejoice in Jesus as the king over all the earth and we want to help others to see this truth, our lives need to display the salvation of, the, of our king. People need to be able to look at us and see what he's done. So Psalm 98, it can be divided into two uneven sections. Verses 1 to 3 are the first section that we're going to look at just now. And the second section is verses 4 to 9. In both sections, there's, it's, they start with a call to praise God, followed by the reason. But the two different sections, they address different groups of people. In the first section, it's a bit difficult to figure out who is being called to praise God because the call to praise is so short. If you look at verse 1, the very first line in Psalm 98 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. And then the next word is for, meaning that everything else that comes after it is the the explanation, the why we do this. But if you look down to the end of verse 3, sorry, sorry, the beginning of verse 3, I'm looking at Psalm 95, no wonder I'm confused. Psalm 98. Uh, At the end of verse 3, it talks about the salvation of our God. A few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 95, we saw that God isn't just the God over everything. He is specifically our God. For those of us who know him, he's our God. We are in his hands. And so when when this speaks to those who are worshiping God and says God is our God, we know that it's speaking to God's people. In the original context of this, that would be the people of Israel. For us, it's the church today. And so these first three verses are calling on God's people to praise him, to rejoice in him, to sing a new song 
to him. And then verse two, or the second line of verse one says, for, it tells us why. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Now, God does marvelous things every day, doesn't he? I mean, right back to the very beginning of creation. He created everything. But even up to today, every breath that you take, every taste of good food that we have, every good experience of friendship, of family, every moment of needed comfort, every feeling of pleasure and enjoyment, those are good gifts from God. Even when we abuse his gifts, when we steal pleasure that doesn't belong to us, our body still acts the way he uh, intended it to, and we still have the goodness of God shown through in all of these moments. He does marvelous things for us all the time. But that's not really what this verse is talking about. It's talking about his most marvelous gift of all, the gift that he accomplished by his own power and might. Right? It says in here that he uses the imagery of his right hand and his holy arm have accomplished this. That means that he did it himself, all by his own power. What is that marvelous gift? Well, salvation, right? His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The reason that God's people need to rejoice, the reason that we are God's people, is because he saved us. He made us his through our salvation. Now, now specifically, what is that talking about, right? You know, for the original singers of this psalm, the people of Israel, it can only mean one thing. The moment that God saved the nation of Israel and made them his people and became their God happened back in the book of Exodus when he saved them from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them from captivity. He sent plagues on the nation of Egypt who was oppressing them, and he opened the Red Sea so they could escape across on dry ground. He led them to Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with them. He made a sacred promise with them. That promise is recorded in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. God says to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then you out of all the nations will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world, earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? God doesn't say, if you follow all the rules, then you can be my people. He says, I made you my people. Out of all the nations of the earth, I own everything, but I've made you my treasured possession. I'm going to be with you. And he's been with them ever since. But the important thing to understand in here is that he didn't say, again, if you follow the rules, then I'll be yours. He says, I saved you because I want to show the world who I am. I didn't save you because I don't care about Egypt and I don't care about Babylon and I don't care about all the other nations. I saved you because I do care about them. Through, through the salvation, I want the rest of the world to see who I am. The other nations, as you follow my commands, are going to see my character. They're going to see the kind of God I am. Right? That's what Psalm 98 verse 2 says. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. God revealed his righteousness, his goodness to the nations around Israel 
through his salvation of Israel. That's why they were required to follow God's commands, not because they were saved by their good deeds, but because their job was to show, as I said, the character of God to the nations. And of course, as you know the, the story of the Old Testament, they did a pretty bad job of that. It got so bad that God had to allow them to be taken into captivity again, this time by Babylon, hundreds of years later. But even then, he didn't give up on them. He didn't abandon them. They were still his, and he still loved them, and so he rescued them once again. Most scholars think that this psalm was written after that happened, right? For a couple of reasons. One is that this section of the book of Psalms, the, the Psalms, I don't know if you know this, are, are broken into five books. And this book, book four, has a lot of references to the return from captivity in Babylon in it. But also, this psalm itself, in verse three, says not just that he saved us, but that he's remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel, right? He, he's remembered, he hasn't forgotten us, and he saved us again is the implication. Though God punished Israel, he didn't forget that he loved them. He remembered his love and faithfulness to them. And now, even more than before, the nations can see the love of God, the character of God, the faithfulness of God. Right? You can see that a husband loves his wife if they have a good relationship. But how much more do you see that love if that wife cheats on him? And though he's angry and sends her away, he takes her back and wants to protect her from the decisions that she's made. He wants to protect her from the danger that comes into her life because of what she's done. He says, I, I love this woman. She's my wife, even though this has happened. That's, a, that's a, another level of intensity in love, isn't it? That's what this psalm is saying about who God is and how his salvation has been shown to the nations through Israel. But, we're not Israel. So what does all that have to do with us? We don't live in Palestine. We're not ethnically from that line. Well, we have to understand the story of the, in the story of the Bible that God's covenant with Israel wasn't the ultimate goal of God. He wanted to show his salvation to the nations in a much bigger way. Because even after being rescued again, Israel still continued to struggle with their sin. They still failed to show the world God's salvation and God's character. And God wasn't surprised by that. He knew that was going to happen. Right from the very beginning, he knew that was going to happen. And that's why God's plan was always bigger than just the nation of Israel. God's salvation was always bigger than physical delivery from captivity. And even God himself was bigger than Israel knew. Because God, as we said before, who's three in one, had a plan to save the world from their sin. And so God the Father sent God the Son into the world. Born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is God who became a human and he lived the life that no human had ever been able to live, not even the Israelites. He was without sin. He perfectly displayed God's character, his righteousness, his love, his faithfulness, and his salvation to the world. And the reason he was able to do that is because he is God. And when he was born, as we read today, it wasn't just Israel that heard about it. Wise men came from the east, from other nations, to worship him. God's heart to show his salvation to the nations is seen in that as well. 
And though Israel, when Jesus came, was once again conquered by another nation, not living in captivity, but in their land at this time, but still under the boot of the Romans, Jesus didn't come to bring salvation from that physical problem. He came to bring salvation from the deeper problem that lay underneath all other problems, the problem of sin. He died in our place to pay for our sins, and he rose again in victory so that we could be forgiven and so we could be made new. We could be transformed to be like Jesus, the only human who's ever lived the way that he ought to. And then after Jesus died and rose again, he gave his disciples a task to take this message of salvation through Jesus to the ends of the earth, to make witnesses of every nation, as we talked about before. To not keep it to themselves, but to freely give it away. To tell everyone about it so that anyone could come to Christ and be forgiven and saved. Follow him as their king. So having traced that story through the Bible, now we, his church, the ones who have benefited from that message being spread beyond Israel to the nations, right? People in this, in this room from all kinds of nations in the world having received that salvation, we had the same mission that Israel had ultimately, to show the salvation of God to the nations, to display his character, his righteousness, his love, his faithfulness to those around us. And so, I mean, honestly, whether you say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays probably doesn't make that big of a difference in the, in the long run. What we need to be thinking about is how do we step beyond that kind of bare minimum politeness that Canadians are required to have and actually look like Jesus in people's lives? How do we care for people? How do we sacrificially serve our neighbors? Get, get to know them. Have them into your home. Go into their homes and help them in hard ways. Let them see how you love your spouse and raise your kids. Let them see what you're like as a single person. Show them the difference that Jesus has made in your life and how he's transforming you. Let them see that in a real relationship and friendship with them. And then don't just stop there, but tell them about Jesus. Talk to them about how he's made a difference in your life. Talk to them about how much he's loved you and how he died for you and how he rose again and how they can find love and acceptance and forgiveness in him if they will turn from their sins and put their trust in him and follow him as their king. That's what we're called to. That our lives need to display the salvation of our king. But there's still a second section to this psalm. The second section of this psalm is that our convictions need to align with the judgments of our king. The things that we know to be true, the things that we believe, need to line up with what the Bible says. Right? Our convictions need to align with the judgments of our king. As I said, this psalm has two sections. They're uneven, and this one's much longer than the first. And while the first one had a very short call to worship and a very long reason for it, this one has a very long call to worship and a shorter reason for it. We don't get the word for that, that starts the explanation part until the second line of this last verse, the second line of verse 9. And as I said before, this section also shifts audience. As the first section was talking to God's people, 
Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. So who's being addressed here? All the earth, all the nations that the previous section was saying God's displayed his salvation to. His character and his righteousness and his faithfulness and his love. They're being called to turn from their sin and to recognize God as their king and to shout for joy and to burst into jubilation and song. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. It continues in verse 5. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the king. So maybe you're here today and you're listening and you, and you know that this, this, is, this part's for you, right? You're one of those nations, one of those people who haven't put their hope in Christ, submitted to him as your king, put your faith in him for salvation, to get the, the forgiveness that you know that you need. We've been talking about how to reach out to you. I, w- I want to talk to you for a moment. These verses, these, these verses are for you. They're talking to you. And I, I hope and pray that you will listen to them. That you will turn to Jesus as your Savior and as your King. He's worth it. Please, run to Him. Put your trust in Him. and He will forgive the worst, deepest, darkest things you've ever done, and even the things you don't even know that you've done. You'll find love and acceptance and, and he'll transform you. He'll start to change you bit by bit throughout the rest of your life. You, know, you, can, you can turn to Christ even, even today, even right now. But I do want to warn you. He's not just your savior. He's, your, he's going to be your king if you do this. And so that means you need to know what you're getting into. This is, this is what this section of the psalm is, is talking about. Let's keep listening to what this psalm says. In verse 7, this section shifts focus again. It goes beyond all the nations of the world. Look at verse 7. It says, let the seas resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. So now it's not talking to the nations of the world. It's talking about creation itself. The sea and all the fish. The world and all the animals, the rivers, the mountains, and everything God has created. This is, this is verse 2 of Joy to the World, right? Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. That's the first part that we just talked about. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Mankind needs to sing to the Lord, but while they're doing that, all of creation. Fields and floods, rocks, hills, plains, birds, fish, animals, trees, the sea, Rivers, stars, planet, everything in heaven and nature will join and sing to God rejoicing in the king. It's an incredible picture. But here's the part that might throw you for a loop. Why? Why are all humans and all the world and all of creation called to worship God? Well, look at the second line of verse 9. For, there's that, you know, we're, we're going into the reason now. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Rejoice in God the King. Rejoice in Jesus. Why? Because he's coming to judge the earth. 
What? Why would we possibly rejoice in God's judgment? We don't think of judgment as a good thing, do we? Judgment is scary. It means punishment. I mean, it's, gra- it's ingrained in us, in our culture, that we don't judge other people. But the truth is, we do judge other people all the time, don't we? We assume that we know why people do what they do, and we make judgments about it. And we all have experiences of, of being judged ourselves. We get judged for the color of our skin. We get judged because of our accent. We get judged because of the clothes that we wear, the homes we live in, the behavior of our children, our behavior, the kind of job that we have, how much we know, and what we believe. At some level, we can't really help judging one another, right? I mean, you're always just making judgments based on what we see and trying to understand the world. We, we can't help it at some level. But we know, we, we know the reality of it is that we don't have the moral authority to make those kind of judgments about people. We're not good enough. We're not wise enough to make those kind of judgments. Most of our judgments are unjust. And they're not good. But God's different. God is able to make those kind of judgments. He is the one who knows right from wrong perfectly and never struggles with that. Right? These verses say that when he judges, he judges in righteousness and with equity. Listen, we know the world's a mess. We know it. And Jesus is going to come and fix that mess once and for all. But in order to do that, he's going to have to judge sin when he comes. He's going to bring judgment on those who've messed the world up. We don't like judgment, but we know that we need judgment in the world. If no one was ever judged for what they did, the world would be a terrible place. It would be so unjust. Think back a couple years ago when the world cried out for justice when George Floyd was murdered by police officer Derek Chauvin, who kneeled on his neck and suffocated him slowly while he begged for mercy on videotape. That shouldn't have happened. And there was deep concern that that police officer wouldn't be convicted for his crime. Thankfully, he was. And yet, in that cry for justice, some people went too far. They turned their desire for justice and retaliated with looting and burning and literally beating people on the streets. That wasn't everybody, but that happened, right? And in response, other people responded to them with more racism and more violence. And it just was, you remember what a mess it was, right? How tense things were. Who's qualified to bring just judgment to the world? Only God is. But here's what that means. That means that you and I aren't qualified. We're not qualified to decide the standards of right and wrong. God isn't going to just judge the other people that we think he should judge. He's going to judge all of us. He's not just going to judge the people who aren't like us. He's going to judge the people with equity, it says. The whole story of the Bible, even before God calls Israel, it starts with Adam and Eve. God creates them, and he gives Adam and Eve a choice. Would they trust God and let him tell them what was right and wrong, or would they choose to disobey and say, I want the knowledge of good and evil for myself? 
And they, they make the choice, right? They make the choice to eat the fruit and to have that, that knowledge for themselves. And what becomes immediately obvious is they're not able to handle that, that knowledge. They, they aren't good enough. They aren't wise enough to make those decisions for themselves. And the world just spirals downward from there. The next few chapters are full of murder and oppression of women and revenge and on and on and on. Only God, the creator of all things, the source of all that is good and right, is able to determine this. And every generation since Adam and Eve has twisted right and wrong in their own ways, right? Sometimes that twisting looks religious. People have done awful things in the name of religion. Sometimes that twisting looks secular. People have done awful things in the name of secular humanism. Sometimes that looks politically conservative. Sometimes that looks politically liberal, and we could go in every every different direction we want to with this. But rejoicing in God as our king means submitting to God's ethical standard rather than the ones that we're taught by culture or the ones that seem right in our hearts. What's more than that? It means not just saying, okay, I'll follow the rules. It means recognizing that God's rules are good. It means that our perspective needs to be changed. So that when we think naturally that God's rules are oppressive or backwards, we know that we're the ones that are messed up, not God. That our understanding of these things isn't trustworthy, and we need God to change the way we see the world. We need to to then be unashamed to stand with God and his morals. Now this, this is scary, because I think everyone knows where this is leading. Because for us, in our day, the biggest moral issues that we struggle with relate to sexuality and gender. Our society values sexual freedom so much that we're willing to kill unborn babies. I don't, I don't say that, bring that up to judge anyone who's gone through things in their past, right? We always believe that there's forgiveness and redemption in Christ for any decision that's been made. But you know that if you suggest that you shouldn't, that abortion is wrong or immoral, then you become the immoral person in our society. And of course, the most recent shift in our culture, and, and lest we forget it, this is a recent shift, is the rejection of gender as a biological reality. I mean, like eight years ago, I think the general consensus on the street would be that a, you're born a guy or a girl, and that's who you are. But ever since that Vanity Fair cover with Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner, things have really cha- changed in our society. So much so that you can't even talk about this anymore and have a dissenting opinion, otherwise you are an immoral person or a bigot in our society's eyes. We live in a world that stands opposed to God's morals, and that's not new. That has always been the way that it is. Maybe it's a little bit more on our faces now. Maybe we're a little bit more uncomfortable with it now. But we need to not only believe that God's morals are right and good, but we need to be unashamed to speak about them. Now, I'm not saying that we enter relationships by burning bridges, right? I'm not saying that we eagerly put people in their places on these issues. I'm not saying we throw grenades on social media or get in fights over corporate policies at your workplace. I'm not saying that we ever be harsh or angry or mean with people who believe differently than what the Bible says. There's wisdom in this that we need to consider. But parents, start there. You need to be teaching your kids about these issues in an age-appropriate way. I I never thought growing up that I would have to emphasize so strongly with my children, you are a girl, and that is a good thing. And daddy is a boy, 
and that's a good thing. Your kids need to hear that from you because they're not going to hear it in the world. You need to know what they're learning at school. You need to actively work to build a biblical ethic and a worldview in them. And that's going to get complicated because people that you love are going to have different opinions and be in different lifestyles. And you're going to have to learn how to navigate that with love and compassion. Not rejecting people, but making sure your kids know what the Bible says and that it's important. And for all of us, whether you have kids or not, if we're asked, we need to be ready to give a compassionate, well-thought-through answer for what God's Word says and why it's good. That's going to be really hard. Recently, Aaron and Mark and I went to a conference that our uh, national denomination of Baptist, Fellowship of Baptists put together. There's a speaker there named Sam Albury who spoke on this very topic. How do we speak about the gospel in a culture that's so opposed to all these morals that God has? Um, Sam Albury, uh, he's no longer a, a, a minister in the Anglican Church. He's moved to the States recently, but uh, he's same-sex attracted himself, single celibate, attracted to men, uh, and honoring God in the way he lives his life. And so he's, he's written a whole bunch of books on this, but these three ta- uh, spe- talks that he gave about how do we ad- address these things and, and show that God's not just a, a petulant child who doesn't want people to have fun, but really cares about his creation and has put rules in place, not to just say no, but to defend what's good. I really want to recommend that you read them. We send out the link in an email. Maybe we can do it again this week. You need to listen to these three talks. They're going to be really helpful to you in thinking these things through. This is going to be especially important, I think, as we share the gospel in our culture. These, these things are going to come up. People know what the church believes about these things. And we're going to have to not just be able to say, yeah, I'm against those things, and the conversation ends. We need to be able to know how to have those conversations well. They may still go really badly. <laughs> we need to be willing to, sh- to face the shame of Christ if that is what God calls us to. Suffer disgrace for his name. But we need to be willing to stand with him and say, this is good, and I believe it. Because though we may, though we may be judged by the people around us, ultimately Christ is going to return, and he's going to judge the whole world. You know, I picked two topics that are hot-button topics for today, but it's not just people who've had abortions and people who are transgender that are going to get judged more harshly than others. It's everybody. These are the issues that people are going to disagree with us on, but all of us are sinners who deserve God's judgment. And as I said in the introduction, what people believe is ultimately between them and God. But that means that they're going to have to face God one day and give an answer for what they believe and how they live. The most moral Muslim, the most moral atheist who doesn't believe in Jesus and have his death and resurrection paying for their sins are going to face God's judgment. Jesus is the only answer to this problem. But this psalm says that God's judgment is a good thing, that we should rejoice over God's judgment. We we don't rejoice because people are going to face God's wrath. We mourn over that reality. I've said many times, the doctrine of hell is one of my least favorite. I don't, I don't like it. But the Bible says it's good, it's true, and we need to take it seriously. We mourn over those who are going to face God's wrath, and we stand with sober humility knowing that we deserve it just as much as anyone else.
But we rejoice that the judgment of Jesus is just and it's good and it's going to bring restoration to the world. Everyone knows, as I said, that the world is a mess. We just all tend to think that it's because of someone else's sin. But the world's a mess because of our sin. The world's been cursed because of sin and it needs to be restored and redeemed. Romans 8, verses 19 to 22 tells us that all of creation is groaning and waiting eagerly for Christ to come back and make all things right for the redemption that he will bring when he returns to judge the earth. And when he does, verse 3 of Joy to the World will come to pass. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, or bedbugs infest houses. Some of you heard about that the past couple weeks. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So this Christmas and into next year, rejoice in the king over all the earth. Remember his great salvation in your life and let it be displayed in the way you live amongst those around you who so desperately need his salvation. Let his character shine through you. Don't be ashamed of his judgments and justice. Don't be ashamed of his morals. Be convinced that he is good and be willing to stand with him, come what may. Because you know he will come to judge the world in righteousness and equity. Rejoice in the king over all the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, I feel like we come when we're thinking about Christmas expecting to talk about nostalgic, cutesy moments of Jesus in the manger, especially when we're, when we're in the Psalms. But there's heavy truth in here that we need to be convicted of. That the coming of Jesus in that manger all those years ago, it's not just sweet and cute. The coming of our King is so important. It has such a big calling on our lives as we remember the, the full truth of the gospel. We don't just do these things to be moral ourselves so that we can earn your favor. We've been saved just as Israel was from Egypt and now you've called us to be your treasured possession and your holy nations and to live among the people around us so that they can see who you are, see your light. You've called us to this. Help us this Christmas and into the new year to do these things for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.